us studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, July 28th, we're studying Psalm 145. The King of Israel, David, praises the King of all creation, the Lord. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Andrew Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in New Haven, Missouri. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharp Ryan. Thanks. It's good to be back. So we get started today, Pastor Preuss. Give us background information, any context that'll help us as we look at Psalm 145 today. Well, as you mentioned, David is the king, and he is uh, singing praises to the true king, who is the Lord. And so the basic context here, we don't, we don't have any indication of, of when David would have written this exactly, uh, but, uh, but, but it's enough to know that David is the king of Israel. He is the man after God's own heart. It is, it is the descendant of David whom God promised would build an everlasting kingdom that would never fade away. And so we have notes of that here in this psalm. So it's, it's possible that David would have written this psalm after Nathan came to him and, and told him of the prophecy of one of his sons who would uh, establish, who would build an everlasting temple and establish an everlasting kingdom. But it's enough for us to, to have that, that, com- that point of comparison between David, who is a type or a shadow of the true king, uh, who is uh, the Lord God Almighty. So, uh, and, 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 you know, this, this is in a sequence of other, of other psalms, and you can find a certain pattern going on here. Like if you go, just to go back a couple uh, psalms, like to Psalm 143, there he's talking about, he's, he's asking God to deliver him in his righteousness. And he says that no one living will be justified in your sight. And so he's emphasizing the righteousness of God is that which covers up our sins, which saves us. And here in this psalm, we're going to find that as well, that he uh, saves us uh, by his righteousness, that this is, this is the very nature of his kingdom, uh, is, to, uh, is to declare sinners righteous, although he doesn't say it exactly in those terms. But uh, as we go along here, we, we can unpack more of that. Uh, as far as the structure of this particular psalm goes, it's one of, I believe, nine, I believe there are nine total uh, acrostic poems in the Psalter. So an acrostic poem is, it's, it's, a, it's a structure of, of a poem that uh, begins, it's, it's when the beginning letter of each line follows the order of the alphabet. So it's going to start with a letter, with the letter Aleph in Hebrew. And it's going to uh, to end with uh, with the letter Tau, um, and and it's going to go all the way through the alphabet. Each line is going to begin with that. Uh, uh, pro- probably the best known example of an acrostic poem is Psalm one nineteen, 
and that that has that has uh, each verse has what is it like eight lines or something um yeah and so and and so each of those lines is going to begin with the same letter and then it's going to go to the next letter in the alphabet uh and uh, also interestingly the first four chapters of lamentations are in the form of acrostic poetry uh if you look in the hebrew so it starts with aleph and it goes all the way down the alphabet and and so this structure it it would serve for the purpose of memorization, as, as one could imagine. In fact, uh, I fell off the wagon in doing this, but I was working on trying to memorize Psalm 119 in the Hebrew. Sometimes I, I get a lot of motivation, and then it then I get distracted with something else. Something that does else take a lot of motivation. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but I found that it was a lot. It did make it easier it lended itself toward memorization when you know the alphabet and you know what's what's coming next. Um, <clears throat> but there would also be an element of completeness in this kind of structure. So think about what Jesus says in Revelation, you know, uh, chapters uh, 1, 21, 22. He, uh, he calls himself, what, the Alpha and the Omega. That is the beginning and the end. That beginning, the Greek word there being RK, right? The, uh, as we say, in the beginning was the word. And so he's the, and then the end there being the telos, that is the completion. He's the fulfillment of everything. He's the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the prophets. And so this structure has this beginning and end completion to it, showing that God fulfills his promises, um, and so it gives a it gives it this structure of a well ordered statement of faith. Uh, we might even say uh, a creed kind of structure. So if you think about Psalm one nineteen, the entire psalm is about the word of God and what the word of God actually does. And so here in Psalm uh, one forty five, we get into a uh, a confession of who God is, and uh, that is He's the King. And what does all of that entail? I think the, the acrostic structure here with the, the idea of completeness, that structure complements the content of Psalm 145. Because I do think as we, as we read Psalm 145, we see the, the complete overarching nature of what it means that God reigns as king. And, and just as, as we go through the psalm, I think you see the words all or every or mm. eternal i mean these that's the language of psalm 145 so for david to use the acrostic acrostic structure in this case i think really I mean, it makes a lot of sense and the in that way the structure and the content end up supporting each other which is is really really cool that we don't just it's this is more than just sort of geeking out over poetry but actually there's a, a theological point to it yeah that's right and and uh, no that's that that's a really good point and speaking of geeking out you know that uh, I, I was i was pleased to hear that uh that one of the sponsors uh for this show is uh is the up-and-coming luther classical uh, college, so that's uh, you know that's much more than just geeking out over learning Greek and Latin and all that all that kind of fancy stuff. But there's yeah, the poetry. This is the great thing about scripture is that it has all these different genres of literature, and you learn so much from the scriptures. But what it's all centered in is uh, is that completeness of God, and that's that's the whole purpose of an education is to have that that fullness of mind. Uh, in in God, who is the Creator, the Redeemer, and our Sanctifier. 
the other thing that you mentioned in your introduction concerning the sequence of Psalms, you brought up Psalm 143 and, and how we see that move into Psalm 145. Starting from here toward the end of the Psalter, then Psalm 145 in one of the commentaries I read it called this the overture to the, the kind of the end symphony here. Every other Psalm now from here on out, Psalm 146 to 150 is going to begin with hallelujah, mm. praise the Lord. And so you, you see how Psalm 145 then, and again, with the acrostic structure, I think it complements this. It, it serves as the beginning of this extended praise of the Lord. And the nice thing about Psalm 145 is going to place a lot of content into what that praise means. Yeah. No, that is... Uh... That that is that's a really good point, and, and it really it sets up, it sets up what the nature of praise is, um, which we can get more into that. But uh, I suppose, you, you, yeah, you, if you want to just get us going, let's with, read uh, with the psalm. Yep, let's read Psalm one forty five, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness." The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak of the, speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. That is Psalm 145. So, Pastor Preuss, again, as we mentioned from the outset, we have a psalm about the kingdom of God, of what it means that God reigns as king. How does David get started in the first couple of verses? Yeah, so first it is, it is a psalm of praise. So it is a praise to God, the king. And it's describing God's kingdom first as an eternal kingdom. So I will bless. Uh, and, and, and you see then that... Uh, that that he's he's connecting the the kingdom of God with the name of God. He says, "I will bless your name forever and ever." So the kingdom of God is has everything to do with who God is, and who God is has everything to do with what God does, and that is that he that he saves. And so so what what he's setting up in the first uh, few verses is 
is talking about what praise actually is, really describing what praise actually is. Like every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Um, and, 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 and this, and, and, and this, this shows that uh, what, what blessing is, what praising is, is not just talking about our own feelings about God, but it's actually reporting, you know, making known, reviewing God's great deeds. And this is from generation to generation, as we're going to, you know, as we see in verse 4, um, his name is praised forever. This is the, that is, this is the name above every name. And his name is always connected to what he does. Uh, like, you know, like he says, uh, in, uh, what is it in, in, in Ezekiel that, uh, that, that for my name's sake, you know, I, I am doing this. Um, so, so, so when, when you extol God's name, again, this goes back to the second commandment, how, uh, that, that you do not take his name in vain or the first petition, hallowed be thy name that has to do with his word, his promise, what he says that he is going to do. So praising God's name has to do with recounting what God has said and what he ha- what he has promised and what he has done. Yeah, I appreciate the connection that you make. And, and of course, it's in, in this psalm between the kingdom of God and the name of God. And you already brought up the first petition, hallowed be thy name, which is, of course, followed by the second petition, thy kingdom come. So even in the, mm-hmm. the Lord's Prayer, Jesus connects those two. And when you look at the explanations that Luther gives in the small catechism, it's striking how similar those are, you know, how, how they both deal with the word of God being given to us so that we learn it in its truth and purity and lead holy lives according to it. So it's striking to see how in Psalm 45 or 145, those are, are connected as well. And then this, this content of the praise that it is speaking the things that God has done. Uh, one of the Psalms we looked at here on, on Sharper Iron was Psalm 105, which is an extended narrative of the things that God had done for his people all the way from the promise to Abraham to coming into the promised land, it was almost just a history lesson. And yet that was praise. And we see how that definition of praise continues into Psalm 145 as David leads this praise and the blessing of God's name, what he's doing as king. What about verse three, the greatness of the Lord and and the fact that his greatness is unsearchable? What does that mean? Yeah, so God's greatness is unsearchable. This this should bring to mind what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And Paul says this after talking about this great mystery of election, how God has elected his people Israel, um, but he's elected them for this specific purpose to bring about the salvation of the world. And he, in doing so, he's actually hardened their hearts so that they would, so they would deliver up their, their Messiah. Uh, and that this would bring in the, the, the Gentiles, uh, because Christ has died for all people. And so, the, and so Paul just, while he, he, he has spent the last couple chapters talking about this great mystery of, of, of election and God, God hardening and yet, yet uh, showing mercy at the same time. He, it's, it's as if he just finally just stops and says, "Oh, God, be praised for, for how unsearchable He is. This is such a great mystery." And so this, this is setting in in verse three here. It's setting the record straight about 
about who God is, about his very substance, that he's, you know, he's immutable. He's, he doesn't change. We can't parse God up uh, with, our, with our own, you know, human reason, our own um, ideas, our own, uh, you know, mathematical sort of structures. Uh, God, is, God is unsearchable in himself. He is, he is high above us. It's, you know, as, as, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, what God says through Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. And so this, this sets the record straight of who God is. And this, what, is, what this is also setting up is in the theme of God being the king, of having a kingdom, that this is a kingdom, this is a reign, a dominion that is high above any kind of earthly rule. Well, and what's wonderful about about this in particular, that his greatness is unsearchable, it, it seems that when the world sees that, that God does something that is unsearchable, that doesn't make sense, the world it gets mad at God for that. Like, I, I can't believe in him because what he's doing doesn't make sense to me. Almost almost reminds me of, of Psalm 2 at the very beginning of the Psalter, where you've got all the kingdoms of the world who are aligning themselves against the Lord and his anointed, trying to burst his bonds. The way the Lord reigns doesn't make sense to them, so they want to, to rebel against it. But for the Christian, this unsearchableness of God is actually reason for praise and thanksgiving. It's it's the totally opposite reaction of the world. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the mystery, and this is something to always remember about the Old Testament is that it's anticipating the uncovering of this mystery, and this uncovering of the mystery is in Christ. He is the mystery made known, as Paul says, Christ who is now in you. Uh, and and this, is, uh, the, this is what we call the mystical union. So the unsearchableness of God is part and parcel with this mysterious salvation union that we can't, that we know it's made known to us in Christ through faith. And yet our reason cannot figure it out. As David continues into verse four, he, he now speaks of the praise widening. So he's been doing the blessing and praising in the first three verses. And now that praise begins to widen from one generation to the next. What's the importance of the, the praise and the teaching that happens between the generations? Yeah, this continues with the theme of God's name being eternal, uh, that the praise of God's name being eternal. So it's going to pass down uh, to our children from generation to generation. This is all part of God's plan, and it also reflects the very nature of God's praise, of, 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 the, of, of the works of God, of, of his kingdom, of his reign, that it's, that it's eternal. Uh, so so this, is, this is why you know, Moses commands in Deuteronomy 6, you know, these words that you hear, teach them to your children. They shall be in your heart. They shall be in your mouth. You should talk of them as you get up, as you walk on the way. Uh, so it shows, it shows us the nature then of, uh, of praising and blessing God's name and that it's not simply a matter of expressing how we feel about him, as, as, I, as I just mentioned, but it's about, it's about recounting his merciful works corporately, not just for you personally. Uh, you know, we, we certainly don't want to downplay the importance of the, those who love him, uh, which we're going to get into near the end of the psalm. You know, there's that personal faith and hope and love that, that we have. But, but, it's, it, but this is about recounting his merciful works, not just to ourselves, but also to our children. And this shows us then that, that doxology 
is also didactic, or should I say, doxology is pedagogical. Uh, you look at the uh, you look at our liturgy, for example, and how we have uh, very purposefully uh, arranged it, or our fathers have arranged it in a way where it's it's repetitive, that it's it's didactic, it's 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 pedagogical, it's teaching these ordinary portions of scripture instilling them in the hearts and minds of the people who gather around from the youngest children to those who are afflicted with with uh, dementia who can but who can still sing you know the the sanctus and stuff like that this is this is the purpose of this is the this really gets to the heart of of, of what God wants he wants these things to be repeated and repeated and repeated because his works should be our meditation all the time and like you see it like in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 Paul talks about he talks about the word of Christ dwelling in you by singing hymns and psalms and and and, and spiritual songs or, or canticles and 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 he says I believe it's in Ephesians where he says teaching and admonishing one another this is this shows us then that the our our songs of praise are what we might call our doxology to God our glorifying of God at the heart of it is didactic that is it teaches something it's pedagogical that is it, it educates us it, it, it instructs us in the true faith and this is this is the purpose of praise is to is to praise uh, uh, to the next generation to teach the next generation what God has done so that it might be instilled in us and cultivated within us can we can we reverse it as well so that not only is doxology didactic but then the and I don't know what the noun is, but the the teaching, the doctrine becomes doxology. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a. I think we can reverse it as well. Which maybe when you go to your pastor's Bible study on Sunday morning, then do you think of it as education or praise? I guess you can get it. It can be both. Yeah. Well, you you, you just look in the in the epistles and how often you know you'll see like we just we just talked about in uh, Romans eleven. 33 when he just stops and says how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out that's a doxology you know then how how often do you have paul or peter say you know to whom be glory forever and ever amen you know and then but then he keeps talking you know so he all of a sudden will throw in this doxology after he's after he gets done explaining something about god's word so i mean if you if you, you could think of catechism class i think this is a good way of looking at whether it's bible class catechism class or anytime that you're you're learning doctrine that if you were to just stop and say, all right, now let's sing a hymn, you know, let's, uh, let's now just sing the doxology, you know, that, that, yeah, that's, that's right. That when we are teaching and, and hearing and learning the word of God, this is praising God, right? And it might seem like it's just, you're just in the classroom and, and, uh, you know, you're just kind of repeating stuff. It's like, no, this is praising God. This is our, this is our life as Christians, you know, our, our doctrine is our doxology. I like that. Yeah. Our doctrine is our life before God. Yeah. I mean, it really, it, it really gives a, a new uh, outlook on, on going to a Bible class or going to catechism class. It's, it's not just sitting and, and learning, you know, quote, dry doctrine or, or dead orthodoxy. That was a, a phrase that was thrown around sometimes, but actually it's, it's quite alive. It makes you alive, and it it brings voice to your praise. It really is a wonderful thing. I think our I think our children get this maybe sometimes more than we do as adults. When when they'll pause you in the middle of reading a Bible story to them, and, and they'll say, "Dad, wasn't that wasn't that amazing what God did?" I mean, it's so simple, 
but that's that's the praise coming forth from learning the word of God, from learning the doctrine. Yeah, well, and, and you know the the our, the church fathers would say this about uh, the Trinity that uh, th- this this teaching of the Trinity of, of of one God yet three persons and the the Father beginning and the Son and we can you know it's so beautifully set out in this what might at first seem like a cold systematic sort of approach and yet a beautiful order in the Athanasian creed and you know and and when you you're 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 learning the trinity what the church fathers would say is that this trinity is to be worshiped and adored right that's what we do that's what we do we adore the mystery we don't sit there and try to figure it out we learn it but then what's there left to do but to adore it and and to wait for him to to, to make everything appear and un- unveil everything that's hidden. Mm, yeah. I mean, I suppose there's a similar thing that happens in many of our hymns concerning the, the sacrament of the altar and the, the mystery of Christ's body and blood. Mm-hmm. We're not there trying to figure out, well, how did this happen? How did this work? But we're, we're simply giving thanks and praising God for what we're receiving. So over and over again, this is, this is true in the life of the Christian, where, where the, the doctrine is doxology and, and vice versa, that, that in learning the truth of who God is, we praise him for who he is and for what he's doing, which is what's happening here in Psalm 45, 145. We do need to take a short break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Psalm 145 with Pastor Andrew Price. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, July 28th. We're studying Psalm 145 with Pastor Andrew Preuss. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in New Haven, Missouri. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we left off in verse 5, where David says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Now, we were talking about praising, and I think I've been thinking of it mostly vocal. Here there's a meditation, an inward aspect of it. What is what is David doing here at beginning of verse 5? Yeah, well, that that word, he, what he's saying is um, he's describing this praise as meditation, and that meditation would be this this musing. Um, sometimes it can be translated as even complaining, depending on the context. That you know, if you think about when you complain about something, you just can't get it out of your head, 
right? If something bad happens to you and you just keep saying, oh man, I can't believe he said that to me, you know? And then you have like maybe 10 minutes later, you're like, oh, I still can't believe he said that to me. Well, what are you doing? You're just, you're thinking about it all the time. And so it's, it's interesting how that word for for musing or meditating is also used like in Job, for example, as complaining. But here we are to do that with the work of God <laughs> to think about like, oh, he, he can't believe he did that. He did that. You know, what, what is this? And, uh, and, and so you see here also the word, the term there for work, or meditate on your works. Um, mm. it's, it's the same where it's devar, right? Or, uh, or, or dibber, um, however you want to pronounce it. Um, the, it's, it's the same word for word or, or just, stuff things um and, and and this shows then that god always fulfills what he speaks you know his word and his work are never separated you know he says it then he does it and so we're that's what we're, we're, we're meditating on both those his word and his work as david continues into verses six and seven he continues to speak about god's word and his work and by the end of verse seven he brings up God's righteousness, which you, you started with this in your introduction and, and the connection to Psalm 143. How does God's righteousness play into his, his work as king? Yeah, well, this, this is at the heart of what his kingdom is. Right? What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, seek God's righteousness, God's kingdom and his righteousness. Right? So his, the, the, the righteousness is the prime characteristic of his reign. And so his greatness is, is really summarized in this term righteousness. This is what people are going to utter, the memory of his goodness and sing of, of his righteousness. And so what you get in the following verses then is what is describing this righteousness. What is, what really is the content? What's the material of this righteousness? I was just talking to um, a prospective member uh, who uh, grew up Roman Catholic and, and was asking what's the big differences between between uh, between the two and and I talked about this this concept of righteousness of justification how are we righteous before God what is the material of that righteousness is the material of that righteousness the things that we do and think and feel the things that are growing in us which may be good you know God some you know God obviously increases goodness within our hearts, you know, by his grace. But, but is that really the material of this righteousness that the psalmist is talking about? No, the material of this righteousness, uh, that is what actually uh, defines this righteousness, is described in the following verse, verse 8. So, so take us into verse 8, which is a very, I think, familiar verse to readers of the Old Testament. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, this is what his righteousness is. It is that he's merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, um, abounding in steadfast love, that is steadfast faithfulness or covenant faithfulness. Right? The hesed, that, that, that the Hebrew word is, it comes up so often in the Old Testament. And it's that, uh, it's that God, in other words, is true to his promise, which he gave first gave to Abraham, that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So this is the name of the Lord. Which the, which, which the Lord uh, proclaimed as he went before Moses. So in Exodus 33, he says, uh, he says to Moses, I will go before you and declare the name of the Lord. And then in Exodus 34, 
the Lord goes before Moses and proclaims the Lord, the Lord, you know, merciful, compassionate, uh, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So that, that really gets at who the Lord is. This also comes up in Psalm 103, uh, that he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is the righteousness of God. So if you have to, you got to ask, what is the righteousness that is revealed in the gospel? What is this righteousness of God in his kingdom? Is it the things that are taking place within you, whether or, you know, uh, uh, whether or not God is helping you or to the extent of which God is helping those things grow within you, that that's going nevertheless going to turn the righteousness of God into into the things that are that are in you. You're going to have to point to yourself to find that. But instead, what is his righteousness? Well, it is his name. That is, it is who he is. It is that he is merciful. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He has turned his anger away by the, by the, by, by the sacrifice of his son. He's faithful to his covenant promise to Abraham. This righteousness and goodness, then, extends to all that he has made. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this, so this is the righteousness by which we stand before God under him and his kingdom. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful couple of verses there in Psalm 145. It, just a, a brief note that in, in verses 1 to 7, David is speaking to the Lord. You know, he's, he's saying your over and over again. And then in verses 8 and 9, he, he steps back for a moment and speaks in the third person about the Lord. It's, it's just a, a marvelous thing to see how praise is both speaking to the Lord in the second person and also speaking about the Lord to others in the third person. And again, you can take a look at any number of our hymns. The one that comes to my mind is uh, Psalm, no, uh, not Psalm, uh, hymn number 636, Soul Adorn Yourself with Gladness, and how it goes back and forth of speaking to the Lord, even speaking to the self about praising the Lord. You see something similar in Psalm 145. Now, as the, the Psalm continues, that the praise aspect really comes through strongly again. And, and you pointed out how it's for all. Take us into verses 10 and following. Yeah, so he's returning then to describe this praise. And it says, his works praise him. Right. So uh, or he says, all your works praise you, O Lord. That is to say, his saints, um, whom he has made holy by his own works. Right. So, so, so his saints are the works of his hands. This, show, this goes back to Leviticus, which you, you have this often repeated in Leviticus, where, where God says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am the Lord who makes you holy. And so these, this is his work, which actually brings about his praise. Again, again, that goes back to what praise is. Praise is recounting the works of God. And praise, so, so, so praise is blessing him and speaking of all of what he has done. And so he continues then to describe the eternal reign of God's kingdom. And so as we get into, like, if you don't mind, getting into verses 14 to 16, his king, so his kingdom is then described by uh, upholding, that is of him upholding all who fall, exalting all who are bowed down. This again is, is the, the, the central characteristic of his kingdom is his righteousness. His righteousness is upholding those who fall and exalting those who are humbled. And so, so we, this, is like, this is like what Jesus describes in his parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. In, in Luke 18, uh, you know, the, the Pharisee, it, the tax collector is bowed down. He can't even look up and God exalts him. 
And so God rules precisely by doing this, by exalting the humble, by giving life to the dead, by, mm. by declaring sinners righteous. And, and so it's, it's, it's reflected by then, and, and not only that, it's also then reflected by, by how he cares for his entire creation, right? The, 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 God is the redeemer who declares sinners righteous. Uh, God is the sanctifier who, who bears with us and, and rescues us from temptation and exalts us at the proper time. This is the same God who created us and created all things and continues to provide. And so, uh, so, so we have that, uh, we have that, that wonderful prayer that, that we, that we often pray in our common table prayer. You know, some, some will, might think of the common table prayer as come Lord Jesus, but other times the common table prayer is that the eyes of the eyes of all look to thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their meat in due season, thou openest thine hands and satisfieth the desire of every living thing. And that's taken here from uh, Psalm 145. And so just as Jesus says, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, the same place where the same section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. He, he, he also tells them, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air, right? They look to God to clothe them and feed them. And so here the psalmist is doing the same thing that Jesus would do where he's, by, by te- he's teaching faith in God's promise, in God's righteousness by, by, by pointing to all of his works to all of creation, how they hope in him. They look to him. Even the flowers which are going to be thrown into the fire, the birds which, which don't even know where their next meal is coming, they look to God. And so, so, so David is, is doing some uh, natural theology the good way, you know, not by, not by being a rationalist and trying to figure out God, but by asserting his dominion over all the earth and seeing even the very rocks cry out, the glory of God. So, so you know, uh, hope in God. Look to Him for all of what you need. Look expectantly to Him, because He provides even for the least of His creatures. Well, I mean, it, it's like the first article and the second article and the third articles of the creed. You you need all of them mm-hmm. together, and they don't they don't fight against each other, but they work together in a, a harmonious uh, one doctrine. And, and to see David put them together in, in such a marvelous way, and as you said, a very memorable way that is used in, in the catechism as a, a mealtime prayer, is is absolutely wonderful. Yeah, the, the matter of the Lord upholding those who are falling, raising up the bowed down, reminds me of the Magnificat mm. of, of Mary's song. And of course, you know, Mary Mary talks about the the reverse of that, which David gets to toward the end, where it talks about the, the wicked he will destroy. But here he he really meditates more on the the fact that he upholds the the lowly and raises them up. Almost as a, a way of kind of like Luther talks about in the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, that, that God gives daily bread to everybody, even the evil people, but he wants us to receive it with thanksgiving. And it's like that's what David's got in mind here by not maybe calling out that that second, this, the flip side of the coin right here. It, it's as if he's inviting all people, even the evil ones, to, to have this come to this realization of who the true God is. And instead of hating him, to praise him and give him thanks. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. As Jesus says, he causes it to rain both upon the, the just and the unjust. Um, and this, this, this is where we can get, we see this come out more and near the end of this, of this Psalm, uh, but that God is both, he's righteous, both in his salvation and also in his judgment that he saves, that he has, his righteousness is, extends to all the earth. Um, 
you know, he, he, uh, he's, he's merciful to all people. He desires all people to be saved. And yet his judgment then is, uh, is to all flesh. He will judge all people. And, and so this is, this is why, you know, if we, if we start denying this universal atonement or uh, what we might call objective justification and saying that Jesus didn't really take away the sin of the world because some people end up not going to heaven. Some people end up with the wrath of God remaining on them. It's like, yeah, but you, you, we need to understand that his, his justification of the world is the other side of the coin of his, of his reign of all the world. That is his, and his judgment of all the world. So his, his kingdom uh, has with it both salvation, uh, declaring righteous, the not counting sins against people, against all, but also then with it, the right to judge, the authority to judge all people. Right. We, and we've, we've seen that in other Psalms that we've looked at here on Sharper Iron, the, and, and that this is actually good news for the Christian, the reign of God, the judgment of God. These are, these are good things. And, and you're right. That's where David is heading in this Psalm. So let's, let's keep working our way through it. He comes back to the righteousness of God in, in verse 17. And, and there's some, some Hebrew poetry here that, that we can look at that, again, makes a good theological point in the parallelism of verse 17. Yeah, so Hebrew poetry, you see this in the Proverbs all the time, you see it in the Psalms all the time, that it'll pair together two statements as synonyms. So this is why it's often, I, I get together with uh, with a friend, uh, a fellow pastor just outside of town, we get together once a week uh, to read Hebrew, and, and sometimes we, we'll, we'll read the Proverbs or, or a Psalm or something. And we notice this all the time when we're when we're translating. We'll work on the first part and say, "Okay, yep, that's what that means." And then we'll see words that we're not as familiar with. But then we'll always just kind of laugh at ourselves because, yeah, it's just said the same thing, just in different words. <laughs> so, but that's just that's how that's how Hebrew poetry often does it, it as a way to reinforce it and to to elaborate more on on these these great words of God. So. So, uh, you know, it says he is righteous in all his ways, kind in all his, in all his works. Um, so in other words, uh, his righteousness is his kindness, right? So that's what that's showing is it's pairing together righteousness and kindness in this poetic way to show that this is what his righteousness is. It's his covenant faithfulness. It's his his, 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 his faithfulness to his promise. And so it manifests itself in the Lord being near to all those who call upon him. And here, this nearness of God, this imminence of God is Emmanuel, God with us. Um, and this, again, is anticipating something. This, this, there's this unsearchableness in God, which is waiting to be revealed at the last day, waiting to be revealed at the proper time. Um, so what we, just as we wait for, for the salvation to be revealed in full in the last day, so in the, in, in the Old Testament, David was waiting for the fullness of time, for this, for God who is near to those who call upon him, who is near to the brokenhearted, to the contrite in spirit, to the repentant. At the fullness of time, this Emmanuel, this God with us, uh, bursts to the scenes, and that's in Christ. Uh, this is talking about anticipating the, the, the incarnation, uh, God becoming flesh. And so he, he's going to fulfill the desire of those who fear him. And then think about think about uh, the story in Luke, um, Luke chapter chapter one. 
uh, where where Simeon and uh, and Anna are at the temple. And it describes, I believe it says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then Anna went and spoke of the Christ child to all of those who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. That is, they had a desire. They're waiting for it. As, as Lamentations 3 says, it is good for one to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This waiting, this, this waiting desire of those who fear God, it's that he's going to redeem them. That he's going to bring about his name that is Emmanuel, his name, that is Jesus, the name above every name at, the, by, at which every knee will bow. So, um, so then he clarifies then uh, what kind of call these people have. So those who call upon him, uh, it says they call upon him in truth, right? Well, this word for, for truth, the, the, the Hebrew word, I believe is pronounced emeth, right? Um, so, uh, so from the from the verb um, uh, aman, which is used in uh, in, in Genesis fifteen, where, where Abraham believed God, right? So it's the word for believe. So, so you see how believing and truth are so related here, and we could we we might even translate this: those who call upon Him in faith, because what is faith? Faith is relying on the truth. It is, it is calling God truthful. <laughs> it's saying amen to God and to his judgments. And so this comes, this comes, this, this, this is, this, this, uh, this help them then comes to those who, who, who await him expectantly, just like all creation. That is those who, who trust in him as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, as the psalm starts to close in verse 20, and we, we referenced this briefly already, we start to turn toward the judgment. And, and here we do get both sides of the coin, that the Lord preserves the ones who love him, all of those, and the, all the wicked he will destroy. What's being said there in, that, in verse 20? Yeah, and again, it's just like a creed, right? It ends with this final hope of the final judgment. But the other side of judgment is... Is all is 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 um, well. Bo- the both sides of judgment is both destroying of the wicked, as and condemning the wicked, as well as rescuing those who love him. Um, you know, this is something that uh, that we can't get we can't get away from. You don't have hope in heaven. You don't have hope in God's kingdom if you go and ignore the the retribution. Of God's judgment, uh, my grandpa was. Uh, I just listen, I was listening to some of his sermons on my way home from my in-laws, uh, and uh, he, he was talking about. Uh, you know, someone said that well, we we can't reach out to people. We're bad at evangelism because we don't love each other. And um, and he thought, well, you know, there's something to that. But I, but but he said, I think that the the main thing is that we've lost our what he called an eschatological, uh, you know, hope. You know that we don't we, we don't see the end as near. You know we don't. Do we really believe in hell? Well, do we really believe in heaven then? And so he he was he, he had some some students who came and uh, and this is when he was teaching at St. Louis before the walkout and when a lot of this you know kind of social gospel stuff was being pushed. And this guy this student came up to him after he preached a sermon where he talked about hell and God's judgment, and he said, "You didn't preach the gospel." My grandpa said, 
I preach the only pure gospel. You just don't believe it. And that's and and so one one guy said, uh, "Do you you know?" So so then he said another guy came up to him and said, "Do you believe in hell?" And uh, and my grandpa said, "Yes." And uh, the guy said, "Well, I don't." Then my grandpa said, "Do you believe in heaven?" And the guy just kind of looked at him. And this is the thing: is that, that people don't believe in hell because they have no hope. They have no they have no hope. So so the the, the because if hell exists, then they then then you know. They're screwed, right? And this is the, the thing that we shouldn't shy away from God destroying the wicked because at the, the other side of the coin of that is that he, he saves all those who love him. That is, what, what does it mean to love him? It means, as, as Paul says, that the, those who love his appearing, those who long for his appearing, who expect the promise of his crown of righteousness, which he has prepared for them. As, as the, the last stanza of that wonderful Gerhard hymn goes, he comes to judge a nation, the nations, a terror to his foes, a light of consolation and blessed hope to those who love the Lord's appearing. O glorious sun now come, send forth thy beams so cheering and, and guide us safely home. So that's the end. That's the conclusion to it all. And this is, this is then, he, he concludes then with the, with the resurrection of all flesh. That's our hope. And again, and I don't know how much time we have here, but we, uh, you got about five minutes. You got five minutes. Okay, so so I just want to get into this. This get back to this. This these two aspects of God's judgment of God's kingdom, I should say. That is the two aspects of His kingdom is His judgment as well as His redemption. They both go together, because if God has redeemed all flesh, then that means that He also judges all flesh. And so if he judges all, if we deny that he judges all flesh because we don't want people to go to hell, we don't like the idea of condemnation, well, then we're chipping away at his universal redemption as well, right? And, uh, and, and so, so this, is, this is why we, we need to keep both of these very close at hand because this is God's kingdom. God's kingdom is, uh, you know, it, it, it is established by his righteousness, and this righteousness extends to all flesh. And so it follows then he's going to judge all flesh. And so the fact that God will, will, will judge those who didn't believe his promise, that implies that he promised it to them, right? Because why would God judge people who, to, to whom he never promised anything? To whom he, he, he who, who, whom he never redeemed, that then that that's not that doesn't that, then there's a disconnect there in his in in, in his reign. But the, you see how the, the way that the psalmist describes God's kingdom is that God his righteousness extends to all people. As Psalm ninety eight says, you know his righteousness hath he shown unto all the heathen, to all all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This is for all people. And so it follows then that he will come and judge the earth he, and the, 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 people, the, uh, the peoples with, with righteousness and, and, uh, uh, and the nations with equity or something like that. However, he puts it there in Psalm 98. Now, of course, then we know that not all will reach the final salvation. But the fact, again, the fact that God will raise up all flesh, this demonstrates that he's won salvation for all flesh. And he's therefore going to judge all flesh. Right, so uh, uh, like Philippians two, he's given Christ the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bend, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
And so these both stand, stand true at the same time. That he wins and offers his righteousness to all, to all flesh, um, which all flesh will ultimately acknowledge, whether believing or not, um, whether for salvation or not, on the last day. Um, and and, and, and the, the other part is then that he will judge all flesh, distinguishing between the sheep and the goats, between those who longed for his appearing, who loved him, right? The, the, that, that is, they, they, they waited expectantly for him, trusting in his promises. And then on the other hand, the wicked, who refused to acknowledge his works, right? And you, this comes out in all the Psalms, like Psalm 90, or Psalm 28 talks about this, how, how the, 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 uh, the wicked do not acknowledge the works of God, right? They rely on their own wicked works. So then, of course, you know, the psalmist uh, David ends with this firm confidence in that God's reign is eternal, right? So he has, again, that, and you had mentioned this before, you know, this this completeness, right? Which, which again, goes with the theme of the acrostic poetry, from A to Z, or from Aleph to Tau, from Alpha to Omega, from beginning to end, from uh, from from the Arche to the Telos, to it is finished, it's complete, and it and it and it is forever and ever, Amen. So that's how. So it's just that that great doxology added to this great, you know, that's part of this great confession, this great praise of uh, of of who God is. Pastor Andrew Preuss is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in New Haven, Missouri, helping us today with Psalm 145. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Hey, thanks. Thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Praise the Lord, all people. Praise God for what he has done. Tell his goodness from generation to generation. His righteousness has been given to you in Christ. That is how he reigns for your good. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.